Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Spoiler Special Podcasts. You know, one of the great things about taking these spoiler specials behind the paywall is that we've been able to broaden our scope a little. We'll still do spoiler specials for huge blockbusters, if they ever release any, and Marvel movies, if they ever release any, and genre flicks and all that jazz, but we've also been able to focus on movies like 1917 and Parasite, and as part of that continuing trend, I'm delighted to bring you my spoiler special interview with Judd Apatow, the co-writer and sole director of the excellent The King of Staten Island, which is out now on VOD. Now, if you listened to the regular Empire podcast last Friday, you'll know that I was totally beguiled and surprised by this movie, which is a slow, luxurious deep dive into the chaotic, disheveled life of Scott, an aimless stoner letting life in Staten Island pass him by, until a series of, well... Not offence, per se, but more occurrences force him to reconsider his life. I was charmed by the movie's rhythms, by its sense of authenticity, its combination of drama and humour, which, for me, the outright lols of the 40-year-old virgin aside, makes this Apatow's most successful movie as a director. And it also made me do a complete 180 on the movie's co-writer and star, Peter Davidson. No, not the former Doctor Who, that's Pete Davidson, but Pete Davidson, upon whose life story the movie is very loosely based. Now, I've long been critical of Davidson's appearances on Saturday Night Live, but I think now that he was, and is, a square peg in a round hole on that show, that sketch comedy maybe isn't his thing, uh, and telling the truth in comedy is. And this movie is an indication that there is massive talent there, both as an actor and a writer. It takes a lot to make a character as self-absorbed and prickish and oblivious to others as Scott is, and make him likeable and interesting. And Davidson does that. So, here's how much I like this movie, and at some point you will get to hear the interview, I promise you. But when I started watching it, it was just to prep for an interview with Judd for the regular podcast. I had no intention of doing a spoiler special, not least because I only had 20 minutes or so scheduled with him. But the second the movie ended, I knew I wanted to do a spoiler. I wanted to talk about some of the great moments that I had just seen and enjoyed and felt moved by. And so I immediately trying to make it happen, which meant that Judd had to rejig his schedule to make this work, so thanks, first and foremost, to him for that. But it also meant that we did this interview at, and I'm not kidding, one in the morning, my time. Which means that I am even more incoherent than usual, so apologies for that. By the way, I'm also recording this bit at, let me just check the clock, 23.27 of an evening, so what the hell is wrong with me? Anyway, Judd was on cracking form as we discussed the movie for about 45 minutes or so. He talked about both the beginning and the ending were completely different at one point. Some of the key developments in the movie, and he was very funny and very insightful, and we had a blast, and I hope you do too. As ever, if you haven't seen The King of Staten Island, this is a spoiler special. We do get into it from the off, so you should really stop listening to this. Go rent the movie. Watch it from the comfort of your own sofa, and then come back here and press play. Trust me, you won't regret it. And you may have noticed that at the end, there isn't a bit with Team Empire talking about the movie, as per usual. If you do want that, we can look at making it happen, and we have looked at making it happen, but we've had some scheduling issues, yes, even in the time of coronavirus. It's tough to get four of us into a virtual room at the same time. And so I wanted to get this interview up for you guys without making you wait too long. But do let me know on Twitter, at Chris Hewitt is my handle on there, if you do want to hear us argue the toss. Right, that's enough for me. As we go into the fifth hour of my intro, it's time to get to the interview. Here is John Apatow. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this spoiler special for the King of Staten Island by John Apatow. How are you, sir? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Good, good, good. So when did you finish this movie? When, when, was, it, when was it done for you? It, it literally was done so late that the pandemic had just started. I had, I was at a color timing session, and when the session was over, I couldn't shake anyone's hand oh, to say thank you. Oh, and then, you know, within days, uh, we were uh, in isolation. 
Okay. Okay. So, uh, so it's still fresh in your memory is what I'm I getting, do. I do remember at. the details. <laughs> That's good. That's I like good. doing things like this because years down the line, I have forgotten everything. And then I'll listen to this and go, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested, first of all, before we get into specifics and specific scenes, I'm interested in the in the writing process uh, on this movie. Um, how did it start with, as you said, and we, we did a, a kind of regular non-spoiler interview for the Empire podcast. And you said that the, you, Pete had gone off to write something. Um, so was, was it this idea? initially and and at what point did you and Pete work together uh, as well uh, the first uh, thing that we did obviously was train wreck where you know he did a mm-hmm. cameo in train wreck uh, based on Amy Schumer's recommendation she yep. said you know here are the few people that I think we have to get in the movie who who were my favorites and Pete was one of them we talked afterwards about trying to develop a screenplay and I gave him an idea for a a college movie and he went off with Dave Cyrus and worked on it. And it definitely didn't come around the way I wanted it to do partially because it was my idea. It wasn't his idea. And sometimes mm. that's enough to ruin the whole process. We don't write my idea. And then you realize, <laughs> Oh wait, you have no passion for my thought. <laughs> you didn't even go to college. And I'm asking you to write a college movie. Um, <laughs> So, but that process was helpful because I, you know, he got to write screenplay and I think he learned a lot working on it. He went off and worked on some other projects and then we were talking about how he felt, uh, he he felt like he wanted his mom to have more of a social life that she had spent too much of her time worrying about him. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we kicked that around for a while and one day one of us said, well, if your mom started dating a, a firefighter, that certainly would f- force you to confront everything that you probably haven't wanted to confront. And in a movie, if instead of a successful person, you're a pothead who's not doing well and is flailing about, uh, you know, that could be a great beginning of a story about how you learn lessons about moving on and grieving and finding mm. your dream and your independence and mental health. And then we just started talking and he spent months telling me all the stories and giving me his complete history. His best friend, Dave Cyrus mm. also has been around him for a long time. And I talked to his, his, his mom, Amy, and slowly we created this fictional world that we thought was the best way to express his actual emotional life. And so even though the movie's made up, yep. a lot of the emotions are what he's been through at other periods in his life. So something mm-hmm. in the movie might have happened to him when he was 18, uh, but it was a long process and a, a very slow process because I don't want him to be uncomfortable ever. I don't want him to even make the movie if he doesn't feel great about it. And I knew this was all very delicate material, but he ultimately was fearless about exploring it. And that's what he does in his standup. People are shocked that he goes right at it, but he isn't someone that lies about how he's feeling. He's, he's, he's very open. You know, Gary Shandling always said that he thought that everyone wears a mask Mm -hmm. and that it's very rare that anyone is truthful about anything. And when they are, and when they look at you in the eye and they tell you the truth and they're real with you, it's very rare and a big deal. But with Pete, it's the opposite. He only does that. He lives completely in his truth and he never, ever is bullshitting you. He never is acting happy to make you happy yeah. you know, or, or, uh, or covering his, his sadness. He's just Pete. He, he, it's yeah. all right there on the surface. So it's, it's interesting that you talk about uh – Pete and his relationship to the truth, because the opening the opening scene is really shocking in a way, and it's in telling us what uh, telling us about this character Scott, uh, closing his eyes, driving down the road, um, you know, almost almost trying to kill himself, and then being weirdly relieved when it doesn't work out. Yes. Uh, it's a hell of a place for a a comedy to begin. It is, and what's interesting is that scene was about twenty minutes into the movie in a completely different place. And I couldn't get the first act to work 
I knew it wasn't working. I kept showing people and showing friends and I kept getting notes, but the notes weren't helping me figure it out. And I, I showed Jake Kasdan, my buddy, and Jonah mm. Hill, and everyone would say, like, there's a problem in the first act. And my wife for months had kept saying, I think you should start the movie with that sequence. And I kept going, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, there's a reason why it comes later. And and I was just resisting it because in my head, I had a certain flow that I was completely attached to but it still kept not working and leslie was like can you just put it at the beginning of the movie and just see what it does and so i went in with the editor and i, and I was like let's just put it at the beginning <laughs> it's not gonna work definitely won't work and then i moved it to the beginning of the movie and the entire first act suddenly made perfect sense and it it changed how you perceived the character it changed the stakes suddenly all the scenes were informed in a way which made them work better. So that's a, an argument mm. against digging in when someone has a good <laughs> note. <laughs> How did it start originally? That's a very good question. It started with him tattooing himself. So he's okay. practicing and over the entire credit sequence, you see him tattoo the Wu-Tang Clan logo on his leg. And it's intercut with shots of Staten Island and then his mom waking up in the morning. And we originally had the Kanye West song Ghost Town playing over it. And it was really emotional and very powerful. But the first thing we learned was we couldn't clear Ghost Town by Kanye West because <laughs> even if he would give it to us, and he probably wouldn't, it would be a million dollars. And then... We tried other songs and we didn't like any of them. And then the movie was just too long. And we said, wouldn't it be great to get rid of this credit sequence, which takes like four minutes. Mm. Uh, and so when we flipped it, we didn't have to worry about it because there was, there wasn't a long credit sequence. We got rid of the whole concept of that. Mm. It, it's really interesting because right away it tells you that this is a guy who is in tremendous amounts of pain before we know why, which which you do, which we kind of get to the nub of that in the uh, in the scene with his friends in the basement watching the first purge, and we get you know get the first jokes about his dead dad, and we get that you know the first sense that there's real pain behind his eyes. You know he's trying to cover it up, but it's there. Yes, and that's you know the purpose of that scene, which is he's hanging with his friends, and all his friends think it's okay to make jokes about his dad dying mm. because he's basically communicated to them that he that he's okay with it now. But the truth is that that's that's a lie. Mm. That clearly he's not over it at all, and he needs to 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 face it if he's going to move on. You mentioned there that the uh, in, the movie initially opened with him tattooing himself, and that's a huge part of the movie. That you know he's a, a tattoo artist, a wannabe tattoo artist. Um, and interesting enough, you know, one of the things I love about this film is that it's not a movie movie in any way, shape, or form. There are things that you would imagine a movie movie would do. You know, I can see there's a version of this film where Scott hitches a ride with the uh, the fireman on a way to the fire and he intervenes and it's very heroic and he gets to feel a little bit of what his dad must have once felt and it doesn't do that instead you know he kind of he stays behind at the fire station pretty much every time the fire trucks go out and also in terms of him being a tattoo artist he's not very good yes. <laughs> up, until, up until the end i guess um but that's that's kind of an interesting wrinkle well we thought you know part of what we're exploring in the movie is the fact that he has really low self-esteem mm. and he's afraid to pursue his dreams. He also has attention issues. So mm. the idea of sitting in an art school for years seems undoable for him. He clearly mm. had the same problem in high school, which is why he didn't go to college. And he's, a, you know, he's, he's a bit of a mess. He's not sure how to proceed. He's very down on himself. And when we see his tattoos, they have, you know, there's a sense that he might get good one day. That's what we were going for. <laughs> like, that's almost good. And it took us months to figure out what his style of tattooing would be. How do you mm -hmm. make mediocre tattoos? Because when we would hire tattoo artists <laughs> to create the tattoos for the movie, they were always amazing. And we kept saying, no, he's not that good. And then we started hiring 
aspiring tattoos to make tattoos for us. We literally went to a tattoo school and said, give us your freshman students and let's see <laughs> how their tattoos are. And most of them were already better than we wanted them to be for the movie. Yeah. And eventually we figured out a style and a sense of humor to his tattoos that would make you believe that he might in the future focus and be able to do this. Yeah. And of course, he's a very good artist as well. When he draws uh, Ice Flash, and it's 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 pretty damn good. I think that we, what we wanted to get across there is that if he really cares, mm. he can do better yeah. when the when the stakes are higher for him. And he says in the movie that he worked really hard on it, and that's an important scene because Bill Burr's character Ray he realizes for the first time that when he's not around that Pete's character, Scott is really kind to his son. Yeah. And it, it's the moment he realizes that maybe Scott is a better person than he thought he was. Yeah. And you have both of them in, in that, in that relationship, both of them wanted to hate the other guy and that's where they start out uh, without, and then gradually they realize that there's, there's, there's more there there's more beneath the surface than, First, uh, first seems to be the case. Well, nobody wants to like anyone dating one of their parents. <laughs> There's nothing that makes you more disgusted than the idea of your parents dating. <laughs> and that's a tough one. I, that's something I went through after my parents got divorced. It doesn't matter what age you are. It just feels strange in some way. And it, for, you know, for his situation where, where the character's father died heroically, uh, it, it it's tough to let a new person in your heart. It's it's difficult to let someone replace your father. So his instinct is to hate him no matter who he is. Hmm. And Ray clearly is coming out of a bad marriage. He's burnt <laughs> yeah. out from it. It ended ugly. And he's so in love with Marissa Tomei's character. Hmm. And he's so annoyed that there is a son there to make it hard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ray Ray is introduced in one of the great, um, I'd say, one of the great meat cutes of of recent <laughs> times, because you know he, he, he turns up the door naturally because Scott has tattooed his ten year old kid. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know that's that's meat cutes go. That that's that's up there. That's out of left field. That is for sure. Well, that is you know a tough part of the writing process. You have to sit around and go, how will Scott's mom meet Ray. And then, you know, this is like the fun of creativity. You're just free associating. All right, he's a tattoo artist. He tattoos his friends. That's the only way he can practice is on his friends. And so his friends all have crappy tattoos. But how is Margie going to meet Ray? What if Ray has a son who's really too little to get a tattoo and they bump into him and they say, you want a tattoo? And mm -hmm. the kid panics in the middle and runs home and Ray comes to his house to yell at him <laughs> and his mom. And what I enjoyed most about that sequence was that in the middle of screaming at Marissa Tomei, mm. just based on how she handles it, you see that Ray has fallen in love with her, that he's so flummoxed by what a good person she is that by the end of his diatribe, he's jelly. <laughs> and then he comes back an hour later with his tail between his legs and apologizes for screaming at her and asks her if she'll get a cup of coffee with him. And Marissa Tomei is such an amazing actress. It's such a hard thing to pull off. Someone mm. curses you out and then mm. he has to charm you enough for you to be willing to go on a semi coffee date with him and they're both <laughs> such good actors and they find the complexity of that yeah. and the natural attraction to make that completely credible. It's the mm. thing that would have to happen. And the subtext is that this guy is a little bit like her husband. Yeah. And down to the tash, you know, that, you know, later in the movie, Pete says to her, so you have, you, you, you have a, what's the word he uses? You have a type. So you yes. have a type and we realize yeah. it's Ray. 
Yeah. Ray is her type. And in the movie, for a brief period, they take center stage, uh, Bill and Marissa. And, uh, you know, f- for a while, you have the, the tantalizing prospect of Bill Burr, romantic lead. And it yes. works. It does work. And what's interesting about it is there's a scene in a diner where they're, they're first getting to know each other. And I wrote it the way I would normally write it, which is nebishy. Mm. You know, I think any guy talking to a girl or a woman is bad at it, right? That's <laughs> how I write it. No one could be good at it. And we're doing the scene and Marissa is very smart and asks all the right questions. And her main question is, why would I like him? What is mm. it about this madman which would allow me to open my heart to him in any way? And... I'm pushing Bill in the complete wrong direction to be apologizing for how bad he is at, uh, you know, being nice or flirting. And then I'm, I'm talking very honestly with him about, well, how would this work? What, what would turn this moment so that they realize they like each other? And Bill was like, I, I wouldn't be bad at it. I, I think I would be confident. I think I'd be confident. I think I'd be good at it. I mean, I'm an adult, Judd. <laughs> I can talk to a woman at this point. I'm like, there are people who can talk to women? And uh, so there's this moment where she says, are you flirting with me? And he goes, yeah, I am. This is what it looks like. <laughs> and it's just not how I ever would have written it. And that's why I improvise with people and why I hire actors and actresses who can be a part of that creative process. Because mm. I never have the you know, the confidence to think that they can't make it better. I, I I certainly admire writers that don't need that collaboration, but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but still, how does that process uh, arrive in, say, running gags and callbacks? Because there's a lovely gag in the movie where both Ray and his ex-wife yell, look both ways at their kids as they're crossing the street. <laughs> so was that in the script or did that come from improv with, say, Bill and then you carried it on? Or uh, how did that work about? How well, that, that was a, an improvisation from Bill. So Bill is screaming at Pete and Marissa about Pete tattooing his son. Mm-hmm. And then at some point he tells his son to go to the car. And then when when Luke crosses the street, Bill improvises, look both ways, look both ways. And he screams it and it's <laughs> maniacal. And it made us laugh so hard. And then weeks later when we were shooting with Pamela, someone said, wouldn't he, wouldn't she scream, look both ways? Like that's the family <laughs> thing, look both ways. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, throughout the whole process, I'm open to anyone having a great idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the parts of the movie, which was very challenging, was the tattoo that Pete uh, tattoos on Ray's back. Yes. So Ray says, you could practice on me. And I thought that's like a blood sacrifice <laughs> to let him do it. It's the ultimate sign of love yeah. to, to let him do this. And I knew I wanted the tattoos on his back to seem funny and then you would land on the last one, which would be the family. That it's a surprise that what he tattooed is Ray allowed into their family. Yeah. And then you would also see his father, uh, you know, in the son. Yes. But I showed the movie last week to my best friend from high school, Kevin Waltman, uh, who was not in the, the film industry, and he said to me. You know, I thought you were going to put ice flash on his back. (laughs) And I said, Kevin, that is the best idea. How did I not think of that? Like, maybe not as the main tattoo, but shouldn't that have been on his back? I Uh, thought that was going to be the case. Yeah. And it just shows you how dumb I am that I could (laughs) go three years working on this and never realize that ice flash should be one of the tattoos. I want to yell at Pete and my <laughs> producer, Barry Mendel at Dave Cyrus and go, how, come, how did none of us think to put the co- the comic book hero on Bill's back? 
Well, Judd, you've got 11 days before the film's released. You know, you could do a lot of stuff in After Effects and Photoshop these days. Yes, <laughs> it can be CGI'd. <laughs> yeah. But like really bad CGI, like I yeah. want it floating above <laughs> Bill's back. Like when they redo Star Wars and they add <laughs> yeah. new things. Yeah, the tattoo is real, but Bill is entirely CG. Yeah. But really, really cheap CG. Like when they fixed E.T., remember they fixed E.T.? Yeah. walkie-talkies. Um, but yeah, that that in a weird way is nearly the emotional, in fact, it is, I think for me, it is the emotional climax of the movie. Then after that, you have his, not reconciliation, but the scene with, with Marissa, with his mother, Um which is a lovely, lovely scene. And then obviously the scene with, with Kelsey as well. And I thought it was really interesting the end, the way that you end the film and that for the first time he, he travels into New York, you know, that he gets, he gets out of his surroundings for a while. And that last shot I thought was really, really interesting. Can you talk about the film and finishing it there? We were trying to figure out how to end the movie and we shot multiple endings. When I, Showed the script to my daughter, Iris, who was 16 at the time. I asked for her thoughts about the movie because she's just a wise person. <laughs> and she said, Dad, I only care about about <laughs> him and his girlfriend. That's, oh, that's wow. the only thing I care about. Yeah. You know, him and Kelsey. You have to end on that. You have to have a great ending with him and her. And I was like... Iris, I don't know if that's going to be the end. I mean, that's part of the end, but there's other things we're clarifying. And like my uh, resistance to my wife knowing the beginning, <laughs> I fought my daughter on the ending. So in addition to that scene, we shot a scene where you see Pete in front of a class. He's in front of uh, Ray's daughter's kindergarten class, and mm. it's career day. And you realize that Pete is now the assistant teacher and that he's so good with kids that the thing he decided to do is to be a teacher. Mm. And he gives a speech about what it means to be a fireman. Mm. And he talks about bravery. And and then at the end, he says to the kids, okay, now you can go nuts. And all the kids just jump up and they start screaming and yelling. And at the time we thought, well, this is really, this is really good and funny and, I like the idea that there's a misdirect. You think maybe he's going to become a fireman. And then yeah. you realize, no, spending all this time with raised kids made him realize maybe he should work with kids. So that was one ending scene. Then we also shot a scene where Pete and his entire family, including, including Maude and Ray, are having breakfast. And now it's eight months later. And you see that Pete is going to art school. And at breakfast, he shows them all of his drawings from art school. And there's a drawing of a horse and a human head. And then there's a drawing of a naked man with a big penis. And it's them all telling him how good his drawings are and how he's really getting there. And yeah. then Pete and Maude talk about going to Oscar's house and feeding his cat. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and the end of the movie is them talking about going to feed this cat. Yeah. Uh, and... So we shot those other two endings as well. And I, I, I thought, well, you know, maybe we'll use all three. Maybe we'll use two. Maybe we'll use one. I mean, on, on The 40-Year-Old Virgin, she finds out he's a virgin when he crashes the bike. Then mm -hmm. you cut to them getting married. Then you cut to them having sex. Then you mm -hmm. cut to them all dancing. Yes. And again, at that time, I thought, I won't use all of them. <laughs> but in that case, I did use all of them. I, I, you could have gotten out on any of those, but I just kept, hey, I guess all five of our possible endings work. And with this one, immediately we knew the school doesn't work, the breakfast doesn't work, and Iris was right that we want to end with Kelsey. But what happened was we were location scouting for where Kelsey would walk in to take her tests to work for the city. Hmm. And while we were walking around, I turned and looked up and I realized, oh, that's where the Twin Towers were. That's the Freedom Tower poking out behind that other building. And I designed the shot to have Pete, you know, walk out into the city for the first time. Because Pete always said that people on Staten Island, they don't visit the city very often. Mm. That it's right there. Mm. It's a 15-minute ferry ride and you, you could go years without 
leaving Staten Island as a kid. It yeah. just wasn't something that him and his friends did. And it hit us that maybe the best ending would be her saying, you know, my test is going to take three hours. Maybe you should go walk around. Uh, and she's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'll think of something. And then we just cut to the shot of him looking out at the city as a, a way of saying maybe he is going to broaden his horizons. You know, she says, yeah. broaden your horizons, but maybe he will. And mm. you also think, I hope he's okay. It seems yeah. like he has more support. It doesn't say he will be okay. No. It just says he's headed in the right direction. And with, without wishing to drill down too much into Pete's personal experience, you know, the, the significance of that location, as you say, that's where the, the, the Twin Towers were. We, you know, famously, his, his father passed away on 9-11. But, but did that play a part in, in a weird way in that choice of, choice of shot? It's interesting because sometimes I don't like that kind of symbolism at the end of a movie. I'm still hmm. mad about the rat at the end of The Departed. Remember, there's the rat <laughs> on the banister. Or Just in case you on didn't the get rail. it. Like, I was like, no, Scorsese went for the rat. I don't need you to show me a rat to get there. They were rats in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did like seeing the Twin Towers at the end of Munich. I, I yep. think over time, uh, that choice has proven to be uh, correct, mm -hmm. but a very strong choice. Mm -hmm. uh, with this, I, I liked it because I thought 90% of the crowd won't know that's where the Twin Towers were. Yeah. And some people might pick up on it. And it's also not dominant in, in the frame, but it did mean a lot to me. I was moved by it, and, and I didn't feel like it was, it was corny. And then in posts, you know, some people were saying, well, what happened to the character? And they weren't sure. And it bothered some people when we would test the movie. Like, did, is he okay? What's he going to do? Is he going to be a fireman? Is he going to be a tattoo artist? And it, it seemed like it, it threw <laughs> them somehow the, the open-ended nature of the ending. But at some point in posts, we, we said, shouldn't we have a dedication to his father? at the end, that that would be appropriate. And then we said, maybe we should put up his photo. You mm -hmm. know, the end of The Big Sick, we showed Kamel and the real Emily. Yeah. And it, it felt appropriate there. And we thought maybe there's a photo of Pete and his dad we could put at the end of the movie. And we found this amazing photo of, of Pete. And he's, he seems to be about two or three years old. And, and his dad's got a big smile on his face. And you also could tell his dad's a bit of a rascal. I like the photo because... He seems fun. And <laughs> what happened was when we put the photo there, I think it said to the audience, you know what happened to this character, Scott? He made this movie. He is okay. Hmm. And suddenly it felt like the movie was done. I mentioned earlier on the, the, the idea that, you, that the movie flirts with the idea of lulling the audience into thinking that Scott is going to become a fireman or he will help out or become heroic in, in some way. Was that ever on the table? Did you discuss it at any point, I guess? Uh, we didn't discuss it because it's just so far from anything Pete would ever consider. That's just not who he is. That's why we, for a while we thought if he became a teacher, maybe it's a way to say he is going to be of service, but in a different way. That's why we flirted with the idea of a misdirect. It yeah. ultimately didn't seem right, but we never thought that's what it would be about. What we did think was that when his mom kicks him out and kicks Ray out, living at the firehouse is a way for him to experience his father, that all the men in the firehouse are like fathers to him. And he would almost, in a sense, be reparented yeah. by this, this experience. And he also would, would, would see that his friends who say they're there for him actually are willing to take him to hell. Like they're, they'll, they'll push him into crime. They act yeah. like they're, they're positive, but really they're very negative for him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these people are completely giving. They're willing to take enormous risks for other people and they're there for each other. They have pride in their workplace. Their entire lives are dedicated to being, able to take care of each other and keep each other safe and that that would seep into Pete. He would realize that there is a different kind of relationship to have, not just with the father figure, but everybody 
in the world. I think it's really interesting the way that uh, you know Pete uh, Scott Scott Pete, uh, the way that Scott is drawn towards the the firehouse and towards the firemen, and yet you could argue that. He has nowhere else to go at that point. He's tried. He's tried everywhere else, yes. and Ray is his only recourse. But you know, similarly, you know, he he's had this weird relationship throughout the film with with the idea of, of firefighters. Uh, he almost he pushes them away. He's almost aggressive to them at the uh, at the minor league baseball game. But at the same time, there's something within him that that draws him towards these guys, and it's almost as if he finds himself in the fire station without even knowing that that's where he was intending to go. I think the the whole area of it is painful if your dad was a firefighter going into a firehouse brings everything up. You know, it's potentially very painful. And it's also a place that you probably do need to go. You do need to face it. You need to work through it. I know that the process of the making of making the movie mirrored that. Pete suddenly in the making of the film, I had to spend a ton of time at firehouses. And I think he really enjoyed it. It was very cathartic for him to mm. be where his dad was to see how he lived. When we shot the scene where all the, the, the firefighters put out a fire, yeah. he said he'd never witnessed anything like that before, even in the you know, fictional recreation of it. And that all turned out to be a very, very good thing. But certainly for most people, it's not the thing that you – often find the energy to move towards, you know, mm. in life, a, a mm. lot of times you, you take the safe choice and you don't want to deal with your pain that directly. That's what's yeah. great about what Pete's done is he, he really faced all of this in the making of this. And I feel like he really came out in a, in a, in a strong place because of it. And just two quick questions about the uh, about the scenes at the at the fire station. Um, one, who is the firefighter the who talks to Scott in the shower? And, uh, Hank Strong. Okay, and is he is he a real firefighter? Because he feel he felt very real to me. He's an actor. I think he's also okay. done some uh, bodyguarding, mm-hmm. bouncing he, in his day. He's a big unit. And, <laughs> he's, and a big- he's a big man, and he you know what we talked about in that scene was that. Hank says to him, you know, thank you for your sacrifice. And Pete's character doesn't understand what he means. And what he means is it's not just your father who made a sacrifice, your whole family made a sacrifice to help other people. And Pete and I would talk about it. And sometimes Pete would say, "Do do we need that moment? And I would say to Pete, I think you not knowing why we need that moment is why we need that moment. (laughs) Because that's what the movie is about understanding that you're a part of that sacrifice yes and you deserve acknowledgement for that as well and uh we talked about how the movie avoids the 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 sort of big cliched heroic moment for for scott but he does get a low-key moment of heroism when the guy with the stab slash gunshot wound staggers up to him yeah where where did did that come from that's a interesting fun wrinkle well we were trying to figure out how to get how would we see the tattoo? We need Marissa Tomei to see the tattoo. And we thought, well, maybe at some point, you know, they help somebody and they get blood all over themselves and they have to take <laughs> the shirt off and suddenly the tattoo is just revealed. Yeah. So we said, well, maybe there's just some lunatic neighborhood figure who has a wound that he won't say if it's a gun or a knife and he's clearly high and he could be a comedic character, but there really is the sense that he might die right there. And Pete has to get him to the hospital. So the trick to that scene was how do we believe it, but still get the laughs out of it? Because if he's too funny or if he's a cartoon character, the whole movie suddenly becomes bullshit. Mm-hmm. But yet in life, there are funny knuckleheads who get involved in violence and trouble, and they're not always serious. <laughs> Sometimes no? yeah. they are uh, amusing. Uh, and a lot of people read, but the only person that made us laugh was the great rapper Action Bronson. <laughs> and <laughs> we had a blast shooting it and improvising with him. And, you know, he keeps not saying what happened. You know, he says, I, you know, I fell on my vape. 
No, my vape exploded. <laughs> I fell in a thorn bush. And he keeps changing his yeah. uh, his excuse for what happened. And then he has one, a line that really makes me laugh in the waiting room where, where he says, uh, tell my sister I know she's my mother. <laughs> <laughs> because that was the story you always read about Jack Nicholson, that he found out his sister was his mother. But in entertainment, there are actually an enormous amount of people from an older generation who I guess a woman would have – would would get pregnant and you weren't allowed to have that shame. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. they would come up with these elaborate stories so that they wouldn't be found out. So that line really uh, made made us laugh. I just wanted to talk about Steve Buscemi in, in this movie as well. Uh, Greg Casting, I know he has a, a firefighter past uh, also, but he's really interested in how he demystifies Scott's dad. Um, and uh, and makes him feel more human because Scott's got him on a pedestal, I mean, on one hell of a pedestal. Yes, uh, that was an important uh, point for Pete. You know, Pete said everyone talked about his dad like he was a saint for a very long time, and then a few years ago, he would start bumping into some of his dad's friends, and they all thought that Pete knew all the crazy partying stories, and so they would just start talking to him as if he knew these weird, you know legendary stories of wild nights out with his dad. Mm. And Pete said, you know what? They always made me feel better because it made my dad real to me. He, you know, he yeah. was a normal flawed man. He loved that people thought he was hilarious and a wild man. And when we met all of Pete's dad's friends, they talked about Pete's dad, like he was the greatest guy they ever met. They just adore him. They just talked about him. Like he was so funny and great to be around, and a, and a, a real hero, someone that they said was an incredible firefighter. And how we wrote some of that scene was we 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 talked to his best friend John Sorrentino, who plays one of the firefighters in the movies and was also a consultant. He was the one who was pulling the tape up on the the floor. Uh, okay, and, yeah, yeah. We talked about you know taking care of the firehouse company pride. And, and we would you know, say to him, well, what would you say, you know, about his dad? And he, and he said, you know, if God was designing a firefighter, it would have been your dad. And, and, and he's the one who told us a lot of these stories. Yeah. Amazing. And then I wanted to talk about as well about the, uh, you, you talked there about uh, how Scott's friends lead him almost into a life of crime. And again, he could have just gone in that direction. Um, and the robbery is an interesting sequence as well. Was uh, was that always in the script? Where did that, where did that uh, idea come from? We wanted to have him get pulled into a, a larger crime. Obviously, they're low-level drug dealers selling Xanax that they probably stole from someone's aunt, but it was about to get larger and potentially life ending. You know, the, you know, this does lead to going to jail for an enormous amount of time. Mm. So we wanted a sequence that might be really funny, but where you also would feel like this could end really badly when we shot it. We shot an enormous amount of jokes, but the more we edited it, it the more jokes we removed because mm. it, it it seemed to demand that you believed it. Yeah. So there was a lot more comedy in it, even though there is some. I tried to think of a way to shoot a robbery, which I hadn't seen before. And the initial idea was, what if for most of the robbery, you're with Pete outside of the pharmacy as he kills time and every time you go inside, you would go inside for a very short period of time. So Pete is bored and you would go inside and be like madness and craziness and shooting. And then you cut outside and he's just playing video games and then pop back inside and everyone's going crazy and screaming and running. And then go outside and he's just like, listen to music. And so that was the, the structure that was making us laugh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's, it's maybe it's half and half half that but it did help us to try to think of a a rhythm that i i hadn't seen before where you're not in the store the whole time you're experiencing a robbery with the guy waiting in the car 
<laughs> it actually it also gave me one of the uh, the biggest laughs of the movie for me, which is uh, you know well, and uh, it's because I used to have the office theme tune as my ringtone as well. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I was like that moment of recognition was priceless. Yeah, he keeps calling his friends to see what's going on, and they all forgot to shut their ringers, <laughs> and it leads to them getting shot at. And that's Robert Smigel, the great comedy writer who wrote "You Don't Mess with Zohan with Me" and Adam yeah. Sandler. Uh, who is also a great director and, you know, many people say the best sketch writer ever at Saturday Night Live. And he plays uh, Alan Moskowitz. He has a great line. Um, this is this is Alan Moskowitz's night. <laughs> 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 so whose idea was it to, to drop the office theme tune into there? Well, for me, it's a running gag. It's a tribute to Steve Carell, mm-hmm. uh, who started it all for me with The 40-Year-Old mm-hmm. Virgin. And in... This is 40. There's a sequence where, for no reason, you just see Iris playing the theme to The Office on an yes. organ at the birthday party. So I, I like to do running musical uh, <laughs> you know, connections in all the movies. Also, quite frankly, Judd, it's a fucking banger, that theme tune. So it needs, yes, it is very it needs more attention, is, <laughs> is what I say. And, and then lastly, it strikes me, and this is entirely my fault because I'm... I'm I'm asking the questions. We haven't really talked about Marissa Tomei too much, and she's absolutely phenomenal in this film. Um, her line reading of "Shut the fuck up" when she separates Ray and Scott yeah. after that fight it made uh, us should laugh be so framed much. in the Shut museum. Shut the fuck up! You know, like, <laughs> yeah. well, she's a really special actress. Obviously, from the very beginning, it was clear that she would be the right person to do the movie. What was fun for me was she just gets so involved, you know, from moment one, you know, she's helping come up with what her hair looks like, what all her clothes look like. I I just love collaborating with someone that cares so much about every detail. These are the glasses I would wear. And, (laughs) you know, she spent, uh, you know, a little time meeting Pete's mom, but I don't think she wanted to do an impression uh, of Pete's mom. Yeah. You know, I took her out to lunch with Pete's mom and all the, the firefighter wives so she could get a sense of the culture of that in Staten Man. Island. And what I discovered when we projected the movie on a big screen during the test was that she was doing even more than I noticed on the small TV screens in the editing room when mm. we projected it. There were moments that made you cry and different levels of of what she's thinking. And it was really remarkable. That was the main thing we said after the test was, did you see what Marissa was doing? I never noticed (laughs) that before. And I think she's so strong uh, that it it forces everyone to raise their game because you realize, oh, she's, she's going to be a 10. I can't be a seven in this thing. And everyone is just on their toes it does feel like playing basketball with Michael Jordan or something. You're not allowed <laughs> to be weaker than your best player. And I had a great time with her. She's one of those people that always says, I'm not good at improv. And then suddenly she's just crushing it. And was so <laughs> right there and funny. And, and it, it's a really special performance. One of the moments I like a lot is when, Pete is asking about his dad at the end of the movie and she's yeah. saying, you know, he was a complicated guy and you could just tell that there's so much more to the story that even now she's not going to tell him. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so much there and there's so much in a way of, you know, I think she feels that she's let Scott down in some way as a parent. Well, she feels a responsibility, you know, mm. to make sure he's okay. Yeah. And it's very hard for her to trust that it's going to be fine. And she's tortured by that. And I think she really finds a way to communicate it because a lot of the movie is about, can she find the strength to let go? And is it essential that she lets go so that he can find his own footing? And what's funny about the movie is everything she says to Pete, it, 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 a lot of it turns out to be correct. You know, that she has probably babied him too much and, even though she needs the strength of Ray's advice, which seems awful at the time, some of it is is true. You know, he does yeah. need to figure some of this stuff out on his own by entering the world. 
And of course, she breaks up that fight I talked about. And, uh, uh, you know, you've got, you've got quite a bit of action in this movie, Judd. You've got the robbery. You've got the, uh, the, the, the fire that the, that they put out. And you've got this, this, this fight scene between Ray and Scott, which I imagine took three weeks to shoot. No, it took one day to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, our cinematographer, Bob Elzett, who's the greatest, uh, yeah. you know, we would just laugh because, We've got these little action sequences, and this guy shot the born identity. <laughs> and we're like, man, if this doesn't come out well. I don't know. This seems pretty simple. Chuck a guy in a pool, you know. <laughs> the old fireman's lift. The yeah, old fireman's he's, lift. He's amazing. All those scenes, they, they, they just come out perfectly. He, he, you know, yeah. he's, he's a real partner in, in the design of it all. Uh, you know, for me, I felt very honored to get the chance to collaborate with someone of such a high caliber. And I've been lucky. I've worked with Faden Papa Michael and Janusz mm. Kaminski and Jody Lee Leipz. I, mm. I, I've, I've learned a lot. I, I tend to change the cinematographer because I feel so dumb. I, I, <laughs> I want to see how other people do it every time. Yeah. Well, it looks, it looks incredible. But, uh, but Judd, uh, it is now time for me to shut the fuck up and, uh, and let you go about your day. Uh, right. It's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you so much indeed. All right. Thank you for your time. Be well. And that was Judd Apatow, and that is it for our The King of Staten Island spoiler special podcast. The next spoiler special podcast, I know it's been a couple of weeks, uh, is right around the corner. In fact, it may even be up tomorrow, may even be up by the time you're listening to this, and that is the long-awaited, long-promised and long Jack Reacher spoiler special featuring a two-hour-plus chat. You'd expect nothing less with that film's writer, director, Christopher McQuarrie. And after that... We're going to hit you hard with spoiler episodes for Gangs of London, Gareth Evans' great Sky TV show, and also a John Wick retro spoiler special with director Chad Stahelski should round out the month. What fun. And of course, the regular podcast is out every Friday if you don't already listen and subscribe. But just a quick note before I go. If you are listening to this, it means, of course, you have subscribed to the Spoiler Special channel, and you have done so at a time when many of you and many of us are feeling the pinch from what's going on in the world right now. So believe me when I say from the bottom of my heart that we appreciate it, and I am doing my damnedest to make sure that this investment is worth your money every single month, even if it kills me. And recording podcast interviews this late very well may do. Anyway, I'm sure nobody listened to that bit. You've all turned it off anyway. Um, oh, here's a test. If you do get to this bit, tweet me the word blamange. Blamange. That's it, pretty much. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Bye. Bye.